Amen. Thank you, praise team. Kind of filled in a little bit, so we don't have uh, people missing. We have people coming in late. That's what we have. Seems like. (laughs) No. Let's open up your Bibles to Acts 14, 8, starting at verse 8, going to verse 20. Acts 14, 8 through 20. We are continuing on in our series, Snapshots of the Early Church, looking at the book of Acts. And I know for some of you, perhaps you've never read the book of Acts. Maybe this is your first time, maybe you didn't even know there was a book of Acts in the Bible. Well, we are glad you're here. It's a great opportunity for those who are familiar with the Bible to be reminded of the scriptures and a great opportunity for those who have never heard to to learn, for us to learn together. But really, Acts is a narrative. It describes what happened in the earliest part of the church. So part of what we read are about missionaries going forward to places that have never heard the gospel. They've never heard about Jesus. In fact, many of them don't even know that there's one creator God yet. So missionaries going forth. We learn about individual conversions. We looked at that last week on Mother's Day. And then we also look at the church and some of the things that the church does and some of the problems that we, they have. We looked uh, at Acts 6 at one point uh, a few weeks ago as well. Uh, but today we're going to look at how the gospel comes to places where it's never been heard. And that this gospel, when I say the gospel, that is the message of the Christian faith. The message. The Christian faith is based on news, on a message, on good news. In fact, the word gospel means good news. And it's the good news about Jesus. His death and his resurrection in behalf of sinners like us. In fact, you've heard of the four gospels. Actually, that's kind of a misnomer. There is not four Gospels. There's only one Gospel. It's the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. One Gospel, four different people write about it. This message. And it's this message that, that rings out from where Jesus was resurrected from Jerusalem. It goes out to the world. And it's this Gospel that creates Christians. When somebody hears this good news... And they believe it. They hear it at their ears and they believe it in their heart. They become a Christian. And when multiple people in an area become Christians, they start churches. So it's the message that creates Christians that creates churches. And friends, this message we're going to look at today is better than anything this world has to offer. That's why it spread so quick throughout the Roman Empire. Because it's better than anything that this world has to offer. Better than the praise and the glory and the wealth of this world. It's true, it's powerful, it gives hope. The gospel is good news and better than anything that this world has to offer. Look with me, Acts 14. We're going to look at 8 through 20 and we'll break it down. There's a breakdown in your bulletin. If you want to look along, we'll have the scripture right on the screen if you want to follow along. Here's what we read. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. Paul's the missionary going out. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, 
We are doing, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. The gospel is good news and better than anything that this world has to offer. We're going to look at uh, this section by section, four points. First, the gospel has the power to heal what's broken. So here we are in verses 8 through 10. Uh, they are traveling in a region of Galatia. That's the region. So we have the book of Galatians that was written to churches in that region. Uh, and they're specifically, specifically in a Lycaonian region. That's the name of the region that they're in, the smaller region, where there are two cities they visit, Lystra and Derbe. And while they're in Lystra, they meet a man uh, who could not use his feet. He is disabled. He's crippled. And we learn that he was crippled from birth. So this man had never walked in his entire life, and they didn't have wheelchairs and things like that back then. Crippled since birth. Uh, just as a, a side note about that, you'll notice that, that he's, he was broken since he was born. And sometimes you hear people say, well, if I was born a certain way, that means it must be God's will, and I should be able to live whatever way I was born. No, no, we're, sin has is, is, is wrecked us in all different ways. Even physically, this man is crippled even since his birth. And he listens to Paul talk, and uh, Paul, of course, is going to talk about the gospel. He's going to talk about the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Paul sees that he has faith in order to be saved. Now, you may notice in your ESV, if you're looking at the ESV, it says, in order to be made well. Literally, it just says, in order to be saved. And the Greek word there, sozo, is the typical word used for saved. So he could mean that he had faith in order to be healed. That could be what Paul means. Or he may be saying, I could see that this man had faith in order to be saved from sin. In other words, he's paying attention to the gospel that Paul is preaching. And he recognizes that this man here has the faith to be saved. And he, by the power of God, of course, does a miracle. The man jumps up to his feet and walks. Never walked in his life. So it's not just that he uh, you know, regained his strength to walk. He learned to walk all in one simple event. And before we look at the crowd's response here, though, think about this, friends, that the gospel has the power to heal broken things. Has the power to heal broken things, like that picture of broken pottery up there. See, oftentimes in the book of Acts, as we look through it here, God uses these miracles like this. Again and again, you'll see them all throughout the book in order to draw attention to the power of the gospel. That God has the power to heal broken things. And really, the way these miracles work in Scripture, they work like a sign. So imagine like a bright neon sign, you know, like eat at Joe's, right? Whatever it says. Big bright sign that says, listen to this message. This message has real power. This message can heal broken things. I think, friends, that's still the same reason why God does miracles today, by the way. The point is not to draw attention to the miracle itself, but to the gospel itself. 
that God can heal us eternally, that he can forgive us our sins and save us forever. That's really the point. The gospel heals us from sin. It redeems us eternally. Now understand, friends, that, that God doesn't always heal now. He doesn't always use the sign. He just sometimes jumps right to the gospel. Uh, he, he heals sometimes. We see that in scripture. We see that in practice today. But he doesn't do it all the time. Uh, even with Paul and Barnabas, you say, well, I mean, it seems like there were more miracles going on back then. Maybe. Uh, Paul and Barnabas eventually died. Which means they eventually either got sick enough or somebody killed them. Uh, where their prayers for good health, if they were praying for good health, eventually were not answered as they desired. God doesn't always heal. In fact, this disabled man right here, yes, God worked a, a mighty miracle and he walked for the first time in his life. But eventually, assumedly, this, oh, one second, this uh, disabled man, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> the disabled man was able to walk in time. I mean, eventually died in time. So even the healing was only a temporary healing. People in Scripture get sick. There's a mention of somebody becoming sick, and they're not always healed. When it does happen, it points to the power of the gospel. Friends, if, if we want the power to heal, not just from physical sickness, but to heal, we look to the gospel. That's the point. To heal physically, yes, certainly, we can pray. We can ask God to heal from physical sickness, from cancer, from heart disease, from whatever it may be, from grief. And yes, God does oftentimes answer that prayer. And I've watched God answer that prayer. I've watched him answer it within this congregation. I've watched God heal someone completely. <laughs> Somebody who was struggling with whatever ailment you can imagine, including cancer, have it go into full remission and live years and years and years after that. I've watched God answer prayers like that, certainly. Sometimes God answers prayer by extending someone's life. So, so his answer to prayer is, is, in some ways, in part what we ask for, but not exactly, because he's working out his will. I think that was true of uh, a sister, many of you would remember Martha Metcalf. She prayed, we prayed for healing, but we trusted in the Lord's will. God gave her enough time to see her daughter get married and eventually she passed on. And I believe that's what he did with Jefferson Davis. The funeral we just had this last week. He prayed for God to heal him, but trusted God's will. And what happened? God extended his life beyond what they expected, beyond what the doctors expected. He got to watch two of his three sons graduate. Sometimes that's God's prayer. And sometimes, let's be honest, God's prayer is a loving no. Sorry, healing is not my will for you or for your loved one that you're asking and you have to trust me within my perfect plan with this. We can ask God for healing. Hopefully we find healing in the gospel emotionally. <laughs> to, to recognize that there is a God in heaven who loves us, who cares for us. That we're loved beyond measure. As we were singing about, by this God is something that heals us emotionally to be that cared for. And loved by a God who created us and cares about us. We can heal mentally. I talked about Andrew Clavin, uh, who, who came to Christ, and what did he say? He said, I felt like I was going sane, right? Not going insane. I'd been insane. My whole life was filled with insanity. And now, as I'm starting to come to faith in Christ, I'm going sane, as if now I can understand for the first time why I'm here, what the purpose of life is, and who God is, and how He has loved us. We heal relationally. 
I think, as well. We learn to love as Christ has loved us. We learn to give up bitterness and learn to forgive. But friends, most importantly, the gospel gives us healing spiritually. That we are broken in our sin by the fall. That we are cut off in our relationship with God in our rebellion. And through what Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection, he heals us spiritually. It gives us new life. In fact, that's the main primary reason that Paul and Barnabas here are going out to these nations to tell them that God is bringing people back to himself. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Friends, I hope that our church, First Baptist Church of Haverhill, is a good place to heal. In all these different ways. It's a good place to heal. And not just here as we meet on Sunday mornings, certainly in our community groups. I just want to encourage you, get involved in a community group one of these nights during the week, because that's where you're going to find these deeper relationships. That's a better place, really, to heal, perhaps even in many ways than on Sunday morning. But friends, may we heal in all different ways, but primary, primarily in our relationship to God and how sin has cut us off and recognize how God is the remedy and the great physician of that ailment for us. But look at what the crowd does. Uh, the gospel, verses 11 to 14, is better than the world's praise and power. Uh, the people's response here is crazy. Uh, if you paid attention when we were reading earlier here. The crowd starts worshiping Paul and Barnabas for what just happened. Uh, literally worshiping him. Uh, worshiping both these men. I don't know if you remember your Greek mythology. I remember in sixth grade, Mrs. Garwich was my teacher. And I learned Greek mythology and I was riveted by this stuff. It was really interesting stuff. They think that Paul is Hermes because he's a good speaker. So he's the Greek god Hermes. They think Barnabas, I don't know, maybe he's taller and bigger or whatever they think he's Zeus the chief god of all the gods so their paganism is saying these guys have come down to us these gods have come down to us in human form and now they're working these miracles that's what's going on there and there's a little bit of background here that we know from other sources uh, there was a story in this region that these particular two gods Zeus and Hermes came down in human form and that the people of that region did not accept them they rejected them except for a couple Philemon and Baucis, who did accept them and welcomed them into their hut. And so God flooded that whole region, killed off tons of people, and except that one house, that one hut, which became the temple of Zeus that they actually uh, came from in this very point here. So they don't want to make the same mistake twice. That legend is in their mind. They don't want to make the same mistake twice. So they bring out oxen, which would be very valuable, obviously, garlands for them, and they get ready to start sacrificing to their gods, Zeus and Hermes, Paul and Barnabas. And I like Paul and Barnabas's response. What do they do? They run out. They tear their garments, which is, of course, a Jewish sign of grief or a response to blasphemy. When you hear blasphemy, you tear your garments and they rush out to the crowd to put an end to it. Before we look at exactly what they said, though, look for a minute at their reaction. Think first for a minute of the temptation. These people think you're God, <laughs> or a God, at least. They will do anything for you. They will give you anything you want. You want to be rich? You want to be wealthy? These people will bow down at your face. They'll bring all their wealth, and they will lay it before you. They will do anything for you. This isn't the first time, of course, that somebody, a human being, has been thought to be a god. Uh, a lot of kings think they're gods, and people recognize them to be gods, or godlike at least. You've heard of the, the divine right of kings, right? This is what the divine right of kings says, that God, that only God can judge an unjust king, and that any attempt to depose, dethrone, or restrict his powers 
runs contrary to the will of God and may constitute a sacrilegious act. They're untouchable because they're put there by God. Many Caesars, of course, were actually seen as divine. Uh, we were uh, spending some time in Tibet on a mission trip or uh, Tibetan refugee camps, and there's Dalai Lama worship. They have pictures of the Dalai Lama. They literally offer sacrifices to him. They recognize him to be basically God on earth. And we got our movie stars, and we got our athletes, and we got our rock stars, and we don't call them gods necessarily, but we treat them as if they are, right? <laughs> they can do, have and do anything they want, and we still praise them. Paul and Barnabas could have anything. They're recognized to be gods at this moment. They could have money. They could have fame. They could have power. They could have all the sexual favors they want. It's all at their feet. And their response is grief at this idolatry. It reminds us that a few chapters earlier, there's a story of Herod. Chapter 12, verse 21. On appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And what's Herod's response? The opposite of Paul and Barnabas. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's a little comment about it. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Friends, the gospel they recognize is better than all worldly offers. Better than all the fame of this world the fortune that this world has to offer, all the glory that this world has, it's something even better than that. And friends, if you're like me, we're still tempted by those things, we're drawn in by those things. Uh, when I grow up, grew up, I wanted to be in the NBA. That was my dream, right? I wanted to play in the NBA, but I ended up being 5'10", so that didn't really work out too well, all right? And I didn't have that, I don't think I had the athleticism, even if I was, you know, seven feet tall, who knows? We dream of winning the lottery, why? What's the motive behind that? I'm not necessarily telling you it's a sin to play the lottery, but I'm asking you, what's the motive? Are you staking your happiness in this world's wealth? Uh, one of the things I, I remember most about, uh, psych, I took Psychology 101, so beginning psychology at Gordon College. The thing I remember, probably one of the only things I remember from the class, we read a book on happiness. And in the book, the author did this whole big study of happiness, and what he found was that all the things we think bring happiness, like wealth, and power, and a raise, and advancement, and our jobs, and all that, don't actually bring happiness. Now you say, wow, we hear that cliche all the time. No, no, studies have actually shown they bring a, a temporary pleasure. So my guess is if you won the lottery today, you would have a temporary pleasure. You'd be happy for a month, maybe six months. If you're really into it, maybe a year. But in the end, it all goes down, and, and this ends up being the same for everyone else. All these things that we really do think bring happiness, Worldly power and fame and glory don't. They're chasing the wind. They're a mirage. They leave you always wanting more. They slip right through your fingers. They're a lie. Friends, where does happiness come from then? Happiness comes from the fact that our Creator has made us for Himself to enjoy and know and love Him. I, friends, I like the term Christian hedonist. <laughs> which don't seem to go together very well, do they? A Christian who enjoys pleasure, but that pleasure is a pleasure in God because our greatest joy, our greatest happiness comes from knowing and worshiping Him. Augustine, this is way back in the 300s, said, you arouse us in prayer to God. You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us 
and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. <laughs> As maybe your heart is unquiet right now, waiting to find its rest in God. John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, this former slave trader, said, God formed us for himself and has given the human such a vastness of thirst for happiness as he alone can answer. The only place real happiness comes from is from him. Or C.S. Lewis wrote, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And he's telling them where true happiness comes from. It comes from knowing and serving and enjoying God. All this world, the world has to offer doesn't even compare to the power of the gospel. Look at 15 to 18. The gospel then is the good news that God cares for us and he redeems us. He cares for us and redeems us. Paul and Barnabas, they try to talk to the crowd here. Um, and uh, they basically say, why are you doing this, guys? Why, why are you ready to, to sacrifice to us as if we're gods? I mean, we're just men. We're just human beings. We're just mortals just like you. In fact, we're just here to, to be messengers. We want to uh, bring you news. That's all we are. Don't recognize us to be anything more than that. In fact, we want you to turn to the fact that there is one true God. There is one creator. All of these other gods are not gods at all. And in the past, perhaps God overlooked what you did, but something has changed. Something is different. He has he's decisively acted within history, made a new direction, and that direction is in Jesus. And even then, even with this message, it says he still has difficulty stopping these people from sacrificing. They still want to say, bring the, bring the oxen and let's kill them and let's still worship them just in case. Even with that message. But friends, notice that the message of the gospel is far greater than what these people have. In many ways, he has to do some pre-evangelism, right? Before he even gets to Jesus, because these people don't even know there's one God. So he's got to start where, where they are. He reaches to where they are, lays the foundation, says, all right, let's start here. There's one God, and he's the creator of everything that exists. Just one God, and he's the creator. Eventually, we've got to get to Jesus, but we'll start there. That God hasn't created us to be gods. He's created us to be gods, he hasn't created us to be G-O-D-S. He's created us to be G-O-D apostrophe S. To belong to him as creatures who, enjoy, who reflect his image. He made us. He cares for us. He loves us. And he has done something decisively in history to redeem us. You might say, well, I didn't hear him talk about Jesus yet here, Paul. Well, he does eventually get to Jesus, even though Luke doesn't record it. How do I know that? Because eventually there are Christians there in Lystra. Uh, we see that later on when they're gathered around Paul, the disciples gathered around Paul. And in verse 21 and 22, he goes back and visits the church there. So somehow they're going to church started there. So he eventually did talk to them about Jesus. Friends, let's do this. Let's tell people the good news. Let's watch them come to faith in Jesus to come to know the one true and living God and what he's done. And you think about it, friends. Think about the people in your life who don't know Jesus. Every one of them would be better off if they knew Christ, right? Every one of them. And you have a message that would ultimately make not only this life, but eternity better. And you and I are responsible to tell them. No greater joy than to watch my, my people walk in the faith, John, the Apostle John says. The gospel changes us for better. Friends, when we talk to people, I think what we learn right here is to start where people are at. 
You know, is this talking to pagans who have no understanding of God? Well, let's, let's start where you're at. Let's reach where you're at. Let's start talking about what it means that there is a God and there's only one God and He's the God who made all things and He actually loves us. And let's talk about how He shows that in His creation. He shows that in the rain and in the seasons and the fact that He provides food for us. Maybe you talk to somebody who's mad at God. A lot of people do believe there's a God, but they're angry at Him. Let's talk to them about why they're angry at God. What is it about God that makes you angry? What is it about God that, you think, that makes you think He doesn't love us? What, what is it about God that makes you think He hasn't sent His Son for us and promised us eternity? Or maybe you're talking to somebody who is a, an ardent atheist. Start where they're at. Talk to them about why, where that belief comes from. What's the foundation of that belief? What evidence do you have for that belief? Or start where they're at. And then tell them that there is a God who is gracious and merciful, who cares for us. He's not distant. He's not alien to us. He is with us. But very importantly, get to Jesus. Make sure you get to Jesus, friends, because really that's the heart of our faith. If you talk to somebody about God in general, and you have a great conversation about God as the creator, but you never get to Jesus, you haven't got to the one thing that will actually save them and actually bring them into a relationship with God. Get to Jesus. Get to the Son who's come to save us. Let's tell people the good news, friends. The gospel changes things. I was reading uh, this week a book called Peace Child about how the gospel came to, New- to Papua New Guinea. In 1955, they discovered there were about 300,000 unreached people in Papua New Guinea. Just, you know, by, by, uh, I think it was by pictures, by a plane flying overhead. And by 1971, there were about 125,000 of them were Christians. That's well over a third of them. And this is how one author describes it. Entire populations found dramatic release from an age-long oppression of savagery and superstition. They began to enjoy not only the blessings of spiritual wholeness through the gospel, but also of social peace and security such as they had never known. Education came in to fortify them against ruthless exploiters who might otherwise take advantage of their simplicity. Doctors and nurses operating from bush hospitals and clinics soon eradicated the terrible scourge of yaws and also helped to stem the severe epidemics of influenza, measles, and whooping cough, which for so long ravaged these tribes in their isolated state. In the midst of it all, the missionaries found themselves at times almost overwhelmed by the sheer intensity of the gratitude expressed by thousands who knew, better than any outsider could ever appreciate, how greatly their lives had been transformed by their acceptance of the gospel. As the gospel changes things, it changes lives, it changes whole communities. Look with me at 19 to 20. The gospel lasts beyond all that is temporary. All that is temporary. Look at what happens next. It proves that the gospel is better than anything in this world. Uh, The Jews, the Jewish non-believers from neighboring towns are already upset with Paul because he's coming to their towns, preach the gospel, and upset the whole apple cart there, turn the apple cart there. And so what do they do? They actually come to Lystra. I mean, these are very devoted opponents to the gospel. They're willing to actually take their own time, their own resources, and travel to the next town to try to stop Paul from preaching the gospel there. Uh, they actually convince the crowd that Paul is a false teacher or that he's there to stir up trouble, whatever, and they stone him. Somehow Barnabas gets away and they drag him out of the city. Now, I don't know which is worse, to get stoned and die 
or to get stoned and stay alive. I mean, that's probably worse. To be stoned is when you get surrounded by a group of people who are literally throwing rocks at you until they see that you're no longer breathing. This is a horrible thing. And he actually somehow survives this, gets up. Uh, the disciples gather around him. He gets up, which I think is probably miraculous. I mean, it is at least possible that there was no miracle here, but I think it's miraculous. And what does he do as soon as he gets back up? goes back into the same city that he just got stoned in. Imagine the courage there. Goes right back in and then on to the next city, Durban. Friends, life in this world stuff is temporary. Think about it for a minute. One moment they think he's a god. A few moments later, they're stoning him to death. That's how worldly fame works, isn't it, right? One minute you're the center of attention. Everybody thinks you're the best thing in the world. Best thing since sliced bread, and the next minute you're a jerk and nobody likes you or whatever. It's all temporary. None of it lasts. And even if you can hang on to it, even if you could hang on to, to, the, to the wealth of this world for a long period of time, or fame and glory for a while, even then you still die, like everybody else, and it all comes to an end. Here's Paul. He, he almost died. Virtually died. I mean, he's just laying there stone, and he gets back up. And what does he do? I mean, there's nothing like a, a near-death experience to, to remind you what really matters in life, right? What does he do? He gets back to preaching the gospel until his actual death comes. That's what really matters, and he knows it. Friends, the gospel promises us something that is eternal. That is eternal. Not just a better life in this world, although that is true. In fact, I'll argue with anybody <laughs> that... A Christian life is a better life than a life without Christ. Even in this life alone, it's a better life. But it offers us something even better than that. Eternal life with the Lord. Friends, every, every birth reminds us that our day is coming. Every sickness, every flu, every headache, Every arthritic pain in our fingers reminds us that we are mortal and temporary creatures. Every death, every funeral that we attend reminds us that we will one day have our own funeral. Every clock, every watch that we wear, or iPhone time, reminds us that we are limited by time. Christians who have the gospel, we have good news that we live on an eternal scale. Yes, we want to use this life well, but this life is not all there is to it. That the day will come when we will face God, and for those who have faith in Christ, we'll be clothed in his righteousness and we will belong to him forever. And that's where our hope is. The gospel is better than all this world has to offer. It heals things that are broken. It's better than the best of worldly fame and praise and power and wealth. It's something we've got to tell people. That there is a God who cares for us and loves us. And reminds us, friends, that we live in eternity, not just in the temporary. Haverhill and the towns around it, because we're from all different towns here, are our responsibility. 
Just like Lystra and Derby. After Paul and Barnabas left, what happened? There was a group of Christians left there, and it was their responsibility to now tell their neighbors and their friends and their co-workers and their families about Jesus and about this good news. And so, friends, that's true of us here in Haverhill. We are the messengers that God has put right here in Haverhill to reach our city. Not just us. Thankfully, as we prayed earlier, there are great churches in Haverhill. We're not the only one. Many good gospel-centered, Bible-teaching churches here. But let's make sure the people in our city, in these surrounding towns, hear this good news. The gospel is the good news that is better than anything that this world has to offer. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for the good news, the great news, the best news we could ever hear. The news that our sins, though they are many, are forgiven. Because we have a God who loves us and cares for us. He's shown it. You have shown it, Lord, in your creation, your sending of the rain and the seasons and sustaining life here on earth but you have shown it most evidently, most powerfully, most clearly in the Lord Jesus, who has come to redeem us and make us his own forever. Thank you for this message, Lord. I pray you'd make us good messengers, Lord, that would represent Christ well. We will never be able to do it perfectly. We're sinners, and we remain sinners to the day of our death, and so we will disappoint people, but faithful witnesses, faithful messengers of this message, telling people, the good news of what God has done. We thank you, Father, that this message is not just for this life alone. Though it does transform us, it does enable us to enjoy a relationship with you, it does give us wisdom that affects how we live, but Lord, its ultimate power is to save us not just in this life, but in that which is to come. And we look forward to that day, Lord. Help us to be faithful until that day arrives. But we look forward to the day in which we are truly in the presence of our Creator and enjoying your grace through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Would you stand with us?